and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm the founder of The Silver Edge, and our mission is to help you build and maintain a lean, healthy body that you love for the rest of your life, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We are going to do something a bit different today. So last Tuesday, January 9th, I did a live webinar titled How to Get in the Best Shape of Your Life Over 50. And today I'm going to share that webinar with you folks. In this webinar, we built out a blueprint for the lifestyle changes you'd want to implement to get and to stay in the best shape of your life in your 50s and 60s. We discussed the three pillars of healthy aging, movement, nutrition, and recovery, as well as the criticality of mindset when it comes to building a lean, strong, capable, healthy body. Along the way, I give action steps for everything we talked about, and at the end of the presentation, I summarized what you need to do to get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age. I want to let you folks know that this show is brought to you by Legion Athletics. Legion makes supplements with all of the good stuff, like natural ingredients and clinically effective doses, without any gimmicks like proprietary blends or hype. Now, look, here's the honest deal. You do not need supplements to build muscle, lose fat, or get healthy. But the right ones can definitely help. I personally love Legion's whey protein in their pre-workout that's called Pulse. And you guys can learn more by heading over to silveredgepartners.com and clicking on the Legion icon. And make sure you use coupon code SILVEREDGE to save 20% off your first order or double loyalty points on all future orders. Again, that's silveredgepartners.com. And don't forget to use coupon code SILVEREDGE. Okay, let's do this. Let's get on with today's show. Welcome. I'm going to do a quick introduction of myself, why I'm here, why I'm talking to you about this. And then we're going to talk about the three pillars of healthy aging. Shouldn't be any surprise to anybody on this call, I don't think. We're going to talk about nutrition. We're going to talk about exercise. And we're going to talk about what I'm going to loosely put into a bucket of recovery. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about the importance of mindset in becoming the healthiest, best version of yourself. Uh, at the end, we'll put it all together with a roadmap for, you know, where do we go from here? I got some resources we can talk about. And of course, Q&A. So for those of you that don't know or don't know me specifically or, or, or company, I'm Kevin English. I'm a healthy aging ex expert. I am the creator and the host of the Over 50 Health and Wellness podcast. Uh, I'm the founder of The Silver Edge, which is an online nutrition exercise and lifestyle coaching business where our mission is to help men and women, people like you, right, in 50s, 60s, even 70s, to build strong, capable, lean, healthy, vital bodies, right? And we take very much a health-first approach when we talk about things like getting into the best shape of your life. So we have a little bit different approach to, say, things like weight loss and even less, to a lesser degree, things like muscle building. But just very quickly, why I'm here and how I got here uh, I'll be 60 in the, in the spring. I'll be 60 in April. But in my 40s, probably mid 40s, I was just as sick and as unhealthy as I've ever been in my life. And this ended with me spending some time in a hospital. I thought I was having a heart attack. I wasn't, but I was just very, very metabolically sick. There wasn't any one major thing wrong with me, but there's a whole bunch of little things wrong with me, right? And at that time, when I looked around at my peer group, most most of the guys my age that I personally knew and hung around with were like me were worse, right? And I didn't want to be that dude where somebody was going to say something, hey, remember that Kevin? Yeah, he just dropped dead of a heart attack in his 40s. I didn't want to be that guy, right? So as I was looking around at my peer group, I just got this very pessimistic sense that, well, it's just all downhill from here, Kevin. That's just how it goes, right? We just kind of fall apart. Just aging, getting old sucks, right? I heard a lot of that. And about this time, uh, I had just gotten on on social media for the first time in my life, and I discovered that there are these little pockets, these little communities of really healthy, strong, aging people uh, in their 50s and their 60s, and it gave me some inspiration. Long story short, I just went on this basically decade-long journey to first just to be not sick, to get to be not sick. And then once I got there, I felt so much better. I I wondered what else there was. How can I optimize this? How can I keep going? So in the 40s, worst shape of my life. In my 50s, absolute best shape of my life. So that's kind of the what got me on this journey. 
And like I said, you guys are my peeps. If you if you signed up for this, I'm going to talk also to the people who are going to watch this on the recording. If you guys are watching this or you signed up for this, think about that, right? You're interested in not just, you know, maybe losing a few pounds or being a little healthier because somebody want, somebody else wants you to be, but you're actually interested in optimizing your health, being in the best shape of your life, which really begs the question, can you be in the best shape of your life in your 50s and 60s? And like most things in nutrition, health, fitness, really, it depends, right? If you were a collegiate athlete or if you were a power lifter in your 20s or 30s or something, or if you were a, um, uh, you know, an elite runner, maybe, or cyclist in your younger age, or you've just been strong, healthy, and fit your entire life, maybe not so much, right? If you're a normal guy like me who never really set the bar very high, 100%, absolutely, you can be. But here's what I tell you. You can 100% absolutely be in the best shape for your age, right? You can be healthier than 99% of your same age peers in, in modern culture, right? There's no reason you can't make this decade, whether that's your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your best decade ever, all right? So I've got a couple of people on here on the screen. If you guys can see, um, this is a guy, oh gosh, what was Franklin, sorry, Franklin, I'm forgetting his name. Franklin Osler, I think. Uh, these are all people that were on the, the podcast. He, I chose these guys. These these three are all in their 60s. That's me. That's Teresa Burkett. Um, this is Twyla Kim. So all of these um, these ladies, definitely in their 60s. Franklin in their 60s. I'm getting ready to be 60. But I just want to say that, yeah, for some of us, we absolutely can truly honestly say, hey, I'm as strong as I've ever been in my life. I'm as fit as I've ever been in my life. I'm as... I'm as healthy as I've ever been in my life. For others, it just might be, hey, this is my decade and I'm going to make it the best decade ever. Make sense? So let's talk about the three pillars again of healthy aging. Remember, I, I referenced a stool. You got a three-legged stool. A two-legged stool doesn't do you much good. Or if your legs are uneven, uneven lengths, it's not a very, it's a wobbly stool at that point. And that's going to be uh, nutrition, it's going to be movement, and it's going to be what I'm going to loosely term recovery, put all that into the, a bucket. So let's, let's jump in here. And I'm going to start with eating. And in order to be in the best shape of your life, you need to eat right. Number one, right out of the gates is you got to eat real food. And depending what statistics you read, the American diet is now composed of 73% of processed and ultra-processed foods. These are foods our grandparents didn't eat. They didn't exist 100 years ago. So these are the foods that are found typically in the center of your supermarket. They're in cans, they're in bottles, they're in boxes, they're in packages, etc. And there is a level of processed food, right? We can say that the unless you're drinking raw milk, the milk you buy in the store is you can make a case that's processed. The cottage cheese, the cultured cottage cheese that you buy is lightly processed. We're going to give a pass to lightly processed, but all the rest of the thing, right? All, all your breads, all your, your cereals, all the things that are kind of, again, in the center aisles of your supermarket, that's all processed and ultra-processed foods. And there's a couple of reasons why ultra-processed food is going to inhibit us from being our best selves. And one of which is most processed foods, and certainly almost all ultra-processed foods, is doesn't have a whole lot of nutrients, but it's got a lot of, of calories. And secondly, ultra-processed foods are scientifically designed. They are made to be hyper-ultra-palatable. In other words, made, they, there's a reason why Pop-Tarts and Lay's potato chips taste delicious. And is it Lay's that says, I bet you can't eat just one? Well, it's scientifically actually designed by PhD chemists and marketing gurus so that you don't eat just one, so that you eat more and more. And of course, that's not going to help us. We don't want to be eating a whole bunch of just nutrient-poor food. We want to be filling up with really nutrient-dense, healthy, real foods. So our action plan here is regardless of your goal, whether your goal is uh, fat loss, maybe it's building muscle, maybe it's being healthier, it's to start replacing processed foods with real foods. And again, one of my best tips for this is to shop the perimeter of the store, right? Start with the produce, you got your meat, you got your dairies, cheeses, butters, et cetera. So really going around the, the outside of the supermarket is a really good first tip. Another thing I'll say that uh, the action plan here for eating right is 
If you're in a place that has farmer's markets, support your farmer market and get in there and talk to those folks. Um, a lot of times, you know, somebody's out there and they've got, maybe they've got a bunch of sweet potatoes and tomatoes and whatnot on there. Ask them if they've got meat, ask them if they have dairy. Um, it's kind of funny that it's legal to sell Coca-Cola, but it's illegal to sell raw milk and most raw dairy in most states. But get to know your local farmer if you're in, you know, if you're in a highly dense metropolis area, that might not be an option for you. But for the for those of you that have access to farmers markets, certainly take advantage of that. And then there's really there's less and less excuses not to be able to eat real whole foods, right? And there's there are some really good convenient companies now, people like Butcher Box and other companies that will deliver grass-fed, grass-finished meats to your door, or there's fresh produce boxes, things of this nature. All right. So that was our first one was eat real food. Next thing we want to do is we want to prioritize protein. We have collectively here at the Silver Edge, we've now coached hundreds of people in their 50s, 60s, a few in their 70s, a few in their 40s, but most of them in their 50s, 60s. And I can tell you that the vast majority, I was thinking through, thinking about this earlier today. I was going to say all of them, 100%, but it's not 100%, but it's most of the people that we coach come into our program under consuming protein. It's very, very common. I don't know if it's common across the board, across all age groups, but I can tell you for a fact that it is common amongst 50 and 60 year olds. So the US RDA or recommended daily allowance of, um, uh, protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, which works out to about a third of a gram per pound. I think it's 0.36 grams per pound of body weight. Now, note that this is the minimum amount that we need to prevent nutrient deficiencies. This is not the optimal amount, and it's really not the optimal amount if you want to be in the best shape of your life. So if you're active and healthy, you're exercising, you absolutely 100% are going to need more protein than 0.36 grams per pound of, of body weight. We also know that as we age, our there's, I don't want to go down a complete and total rabbit hole, but our, our muscles, nutrient sensing, specifically uh, protein sensing, capabilities start to diminish and there's not a whole lot it seems that we can do to to correct that through lifestyle or behavior changes just know that your muscle's not as good at sensing protein so you need it in a higher dose of protein say than the your 20 30 year old younger self so i also want to talk a little bit about we say protein like it's all one thing but protein's actually 20 different amino acids they all do fairly different things, right? They're all, they all have the common bond of being uh, proteins. But we've got, these are, note that these are made up of 20 different amino acids, nine of which are essential, meaning that we need to get them through the foods we eat. And so that means that when we're selecting our protein sources, we want to select foods with a high quality amino acid profile. So our best sources of that are going to be things like lean cuts of beef, poultry, fish, seafood, eggs, uh, lean pork. Plain Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, um, tempeh, tofu, edamame, and you're going to start to, you know, for plant-based folks, obviously you got to have some protein sources, but know that our amino acid profile uh, starts to deteriorate as we start to move into more of these, you know, when you start saying tempeh and tofu, yeah, they're high in protein, but know that the protein quality of a block of tofu is not the same as grass-fed steak, Okay. So our action plan then for eating right is to eat between 0.7 and 1 gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. So for those of you that maybe want to lose 10, 20 pounds, whatever that weight is, should be your goal. You know, your ideal amount of protein would be, say, 1 gram per pound of that weight. Those of you that want to put on 10 pounds of maybe even 20 pounds of muscle, pretty aggressive, but certainly doable. You would want to then you know, bump your weight up and, and making that calculation. All right. Number three here on our eating prescription is to eat mindfully. So we talked about eating real food, talked about prioritizing protein. And for most of us that are kind of hardcore go-getters, we want to be in great shape. That makes sense, right? Yeah, I'm all in, Kev. Uh, this one, a lot of us find kind of tricky. And what, uh, what I mean when I say eat mindfully is it means to eat without distractions. It means to eat slowly. And when I say without distractions, I mean no iPhone, no tablet, no TV in the background. 
It means not eating in your car or at your desk or standing in the pantry and eating right out of the, out of the, uh, out of the package, right? But eat your meal slowly and thoughtfully. Slow down, appreciate your food, smell your food, chew your food, notice the, the smell, the taste, the texture of your food, put your fork down in between bites. This is one that I've had to work on quite a bit in my own journey, pretty much a just scarf it down and get it done kind of guy. But it takes some time for our stomach to signal our brain that we're full. And when we're just wolfing our food down, your, your brain is going to miss, you're going to override those satiety cues. Keep in mind also that as humans, we eat for a lot of reasons, right? We eat for the obvious reasons. It's, it's fuel. Uh, we eat because of real hunger, but mostly we eat um, for other reasons. We eat when we're nervous, we eat when we're anxious or depressed, but we also eat when we're happy. Think about celebrations or, you know, oftentimes we eat and we're just plain bored. I'm pretty, pretty safe saying that everybody here on this call, everybody watching in the future has caught themselves at one point or another standing in the pantry kind of eating, I like to say eating chips out of the bag, trying to decide whether or not I want chips, right? That's that's not eating for hunger. That's eating out of bore, out of boredom. So our action plan here is to eat all your all your meals sitting at a table without any distractions. And without distractions, let's just go ahead and say without the without the eye, right? Because uh, I think that's the biggest offender here. Number four is to hydrate. About half the U.S. population does not drink the recommendation. Again, there's a minimum recommendation. or The, the USDA says you should have three 16-ounce glasses of water each day. That's kind of sad, really. That's a paltry 48 ounces of water a day. But we know that staying hydrated is critical for your overall health and well-being. And drinking adequate water every day kind of helps regulate your body temperature. It keeps your joints um your joints well lubricated, it bolsters immune system, it helps deliver nutrients to your cells. It's critical for your organs to keep functioning. Uh, in addition, proper hydration also improves sleep, cognition, mood. So really, there's not a whole lot of excuses not to do this. Our action plan is pretty simple. Drink half your body weight in ounces of water every day. I've got a 32-ounce uh, Hydro Flask here. I carry it everywhere I go. If I get, there you go, right on. If I get three of these down, I know that I'm close to my water goal for the day. I like having a bigger container as opposed to trying to keep up with, an, you know, maybe you're drinking out of a 12-ounce glass and, okay, well, I'm going to have eight of these today. Kind of hard to keep up with that. If you have a little bigger container, a little easier. That's my preference. All right. Um, this is the last one we're going to talk about for nutrition. And it's how much really, this is how much should you eat. And we're going to talk about how to calculate maintenance calories. So we could literally spend hours on this subject, but let's all agree that how much you should eat is very individualized. It really depends on your starting point. It depends on your metabolic health and it depends on your goals. And we're going to stay kind of high level here, but just in general, know this, that in order to build muscle, we need to be in a calorie surplus that gets missed a lot. Um, sometimes we're kind of wondering what I'm not getting those gains. And it may be because you're under eating or you're at, you're at maintenance calories and not in that surplus. And in fact, to lose fat, we need to be in a calorie deficit. So that's your diet phase. And of course, if you want to maintain exactly where you are, that's your maintenance. So those of you that are familiar with the Silver Edge, maybe follow us on social media or other people like us that like to talk a lot about restoring metabolic health, especially if you're interested in fat loss, you may have heard me or somebody else say what you do before and after your diet is infinitely more important for long-term healthy weight management than what you do during your diet. And now this subject of restoring and um, optimizing your metabolism is definitely outside the scope of this presentation tonight. But let's just give some very general guidelines for what we mean when we say being metabolically healthy enough to start a diet. And I'll say that for you guys, if you're currently eating less than 2,300 calories, you don't have any business going on a diet. You should absolutely not diet. If ladies, if you're eating less than 1,800 and these, you know, I, I would rather say guys eat 2,500 minimum ladies closer to 2,000. But Look, you, you know, a five foot two, 110 pound lady is different than a 160 pound woman who's, you know, um, five foot seven, for example, right? So there's a lot of variation in there. Just know we don't want you under eating and then going on a diet. That's a recipe for metabolic disaster. So those of you that are, you know, our actual plan here is going to be to 
figure out what our maintenance calories are. Those of you that have fat loss goal, you would be way better off, better served, I think, by doing a reverse diet that is bumping up your calories slowly over time. Now, all of you guys, if you're not sure what I'm talking about when I say restoring your metabolism or optimizing your metabolism or reverse diet, everybody on the call, um, let's see, you folks that are listening to this in the future on replay, you're just going to have to shoot me an email at coach at silveredgefitness.com. I've got a resource guide. So if anybody wants to deep dive into what is, what is he talking about? Metabolic restoration. What is he talking about? Reverse diet. How would I apply that? I've got a resource guide that deep dives into all that. It's, it's free resources. All right. So action plan here, weigh, measure, and track everything you eat and drink for a minimum of a week. And I think you need to do it for a week because most of us, or many of us, I think, have different eating patterns, say, on the weekdays than we do on the weekends. So very often, we see this all the time in our clients' food logs, right? We have one set of eating behaviors on the weekdays, and for some of them, all hell breaks loose on the weekends. But tracking your food is going to give you some awareness of, A, what is your maintenance calories? So I'm assuming right now that you're not drastically gaining or losing weight. And if if that's the case, and if you track, don't change the way you eat, but track everything you weigh, measure, track everything you eat and drink for a week, preferably a couple of weeks, that's going to take the average of all those days that you tracked. That's your maintenance calories. And it'll also teach you what serving sizes are. Anybody who's actually ever taken ketchup, squirted into a tablespoon, and then scraped it out, that is a very, very sad amount of ketchup. (laughs) It's just not very much at all. Same thing with peanut butter. Peanut butter is typically two, I think a serving size of the kind I buy is two tablespoons. Still not very much peanut butter. Um, Granola is another famous one. It's a typical serving size is a quarter cup. If you've ever poured... (laughs) Manola into a sad little quarter cup measuring. It's it's pathetic, right? I mean, that's that's a bite of granola for me. But it gives you that awareness. It also gives you an awareness of how much protein you're eating. So that's how you're going to figure out if you're in that 0.7 to 1 gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. It'll tell you how many carbs, tell you how much um, fats you're eating. You can also see things like sodium and sugar and vitamins, minerals, things like that. Free apps out there. There's tons of tracking apps. The most popular is my fitness pal. You don't need to do the paid version. You can just do the free version if you want. So that's what I got for you on food. Um, let's talk a little bit about exercise. So you want to be in the best shape of your life over 50, you're going to have to move right. And I'm going to start right here with walking. And I'll go ahead and admit. I used to think early on, especially early on, as I was moving from fixing my health and getting my nutrition coaching certification and my personal training certifications and um, starting to actually coach people, I would hear people say, especially talking to those of us over 50, and they would they would say, hey, um, a good tip is to park far away from the, the grocery store and get those extra steps. And I think to myself, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. I mean, that's actually demeaning. Why Why am I some frail old man? <laughs> I, I mean, you're, you're just not going to get jacked walking those extra hundred steps to the grocery like store. Right? Um, I have completely and totally changed my tune there. Okay. I, was, um, I think that walking should be the foundation of our movement practice for those of us over 50. No, for yeah, family. when I go to the gym, when I go to the grocery store, let me just mute this. When I go to the gym, when I go to the grocery store, I do. I park far away. When I go to church, I park far away. I'm getting those, and I'm trying to walk more anyway, but just know that I think walking is should be the foundation of your movement practice. Outdoors best, but our goal is really to get some kind of movement every day. I know, you know, some of you in the northern hemisphere, it's kind of cold, dark, early. Walking outdoors might not be as practical. It's more important to get those steps in or some kind of movement. It doesn't actually have to be walking. Walking it just happens to be the most natural uh, human movement that we have. So our action plan is to walk a minimum of 7,000 steps daily. Uh, that works out to about three and a half miles, daily miles. That should take you in. A little over an hour, probably for most of you, maybe somewhere between an hour, an hour and twenty minutes, maybe. Once you're there, if you're not if you're not already hitting 10K steps, the gold standard is 10 steps. I would suggest that you make a plan to move towards 10,000 steps. If you're only walking a couple thousand steps a day, don't start walking 10,000 steps tomorrow. Maybe take that up in, in steps week over week. But 10,000 steps is roughly five miles. That's going to take you an hour and what, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, maybe a little longer, depending on, on uh, I guess, your stride length. But that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with a walk. And now we're going to get into the fun stuff, right? So number two, if you want to be 
in the best shape of your life, you're going to have to strength train. All right. So not only does muscle look good on your body, it makes you stronger, it makes you more injury resistant, but muscle is also the organ of health and longevity. And in addition, muscle is 100% your best long-term sustainable fat loss friend. So you guys have probably heard terms like sarcopenia, osteopenia. Sarcopenia is age-related muscle loss. Osteopenia refers to age-related bone loss. Both of these are certainly concerns in our age demographic, right? 50s, 60s, 70s. But both of these conditions are, they're more a problem due to our lifestyle and less due to just the inevitables, inevitability of aging. Look, nobody defeats aging. We're all going to decline and we're all going to meet the same end. That is a reality. However, when we talk about muscle loss and bone density loss, most of that, like 90% of that is in our control. We have, we have access to lifestyle changes that we can uh, prevent that. So without going too far down a rabbit hole, I do want to talk a little bit about a distinction between slow twitch or type one muscle fiber and fast twitch or type two muscle fibers. So slow twitch fibers are what you use to walk, right? That's what we're going to use when we're walking, when we're jogging for that low level endurance. So think of Think of endurance athletes like marathoners and triathletes. They epitomize the that slow twitch muscle fiber type. And fast twitch, on the other hand, is what we use for really short bursts of intense activity. So think of things like jumping, sprinting, lifting something very heavy. And think of your slow twitch as your endurance muscles. They go all day, but they're really small and they have very little force production or power. Your fast twitch muscles, on the other side, other hand, they're actually bigger, physically bigger fibers. And they're very powerful, but they're wimps when it comes to endurance. They, they go for a little, a very short period of time and they're done. They suck in endurance. So, and now look, this is admittedly a gross oversimplification, but I think you get the gist. There's these two basic fiber types. There's a little over, over, overlap, but the best way to illustrate this is imagine or Google an elite marathoner and, and then just go Google elite sprinter. And you're going to see these are two very different body types. The elite marathoner is very frail and skinny looking, right? And especially if they're in our age bracket, probably even more so, while the sprinter looks jacked. And what you're, what you're noticing there is the difference between a type one, type two muscle or slow twitch and fast twitch. And the reason I bring this up is that as we age, we actually do a pretty good job of hanging on to our slow twitch muscle fibers very well. We don't lose those. And there's a metabolic reason for that, but we just don't lose those the way we do our fast twitch muscle fibers. So when we say sarcopenia, when we say muscle loss in older population, we're primarily talking about the first thing that's going to go is that metabolically expensive fast twitch muscle, those big, powerful, but wimpy when it comes to endurance muscle fibers. So in other words, sarco sarcopenia, then we could think of that primarily as a loss of that fast twitch type two muscle fibers. And now remember... In the eat right section, we talked about the importance of optimizing our metabolisms. Well, it's our metabolism that's actually paring down that type two muscle. In other words, if we don't use type two muscle, it's metabolically expensive. It takes more calories to keep that muscle on your body while we're at rest. So those of you that have type two muscle on your body right now, sitting here while you're listening, you're burning more calories just to keep that on your body. So as soon as your central nervous system perceives that you don't require that metabolically expensive fast twitch muscle fibers, it's going to get rid of it 100%. And this is one of the downfalls of just modern diet culture, right? Kind of as an aside, especially as we, for us older, older folks, right? If we're relatively inactive and we just eat less food, we just go on a diet, we're losing muscle as, as well as fat. And in some cases, we could even potentially, if we had muscle, we, we could lose more muscle in the fat, but just a really unhealthy place to be. We know that muscle, we're learning more and more that muscle has the uh, very much a health preserving uh, effect, especially as aging. We want to hang on to muscle. And when we say hang on to muscle, just know that we're talking about this fast twitch. And so why all this about fast twitch? Because that's what we develop when we do strength training. We're developing fast twitch muscle. So my action plan here is to follow a professionally designed workout program. I say get an age-appropriate, professionally designed strength training program and then apply the principles of progressive overload. And let me be clear. When I say age-appropriate, especially for you guys, guys and gals, 
this audience, I'm not referring to those tiny two pound pink little dumbbells. I'm not talking about wall pushups. I'm talking about compound functional movements like the squat, the deadlift, presses, pulls, exercises that mimic real life movements and make us strong and functional and capable in real life. So I would personally strongly recommend if you don't have a coach, get a coach either in person or virtual. And look, in person, a good in person is always going to be better than online, but online is better than none at all. If you're really interested in becoming a student of of getting stronger in movements like the deadlift and the squat, the bench press, overhead press, um, there's a book by a guy named Mark Ripito called Starting Strength, which is basically your your PhD in these movements. The absolute next best thing to having um, a, a professional right there with you while you're while you're lifting. At any rate, um, you guys are going to get all of that in the resource guide. So. Um, you can you can check that out. And look, this doesn't have to be anything crazy either. In fact, it shouldn't be. We're talking for most people three to four days of forty-five minutes to an hour and fifteen minutes of well thought out and structured programming. All right, and we're going to wrap up exercise by talking about cardio. So I'm going to start here with a pretty strong statement, and I'm going to say this: when it comes to cardio, you should do cardio for heart health. You absolutely should but you should not do it for weight loss. Cardio actually sucks for weight loss. And actually, let me, let me rewind that a little bit. Uh, uh, Let's say it over-reliance on cardio sucks for long-term weight loss. If you're somebody who just ramps up the the cardio, drops the calories, you're going to lose some fat. You're going to lose some muscle. You're going to lose some fat. You're going to lose some weight, 100%. There's some reasons why that's just not long-term sustainable, why we don't promote that sort of thing. And I know that at first glance, this can seem a little counterintuitive because let's face it, you're going to burn more calories doing, say, 45 minutes of running, biking, rowing, swimming, aerobics, boot camp, whatever, than you are of 45 minutes of weightlifting where you're going to lift something, let's say, uh, three to 15 times, perhaps, and then you're going to rest anywhere from 45 seconds to three minutes, potentially. So you got these long. So you are burning more calories when you do the aerobics. But. There are a couple of other factors you need to consider here. And the first is that the calorie burn stops the instant you stop doing the cardio. So, right, if I'm hammering away on, an, on, a, on a bike, let's say, uh, I'm burning more calories than I would be if I were lifting weights. But the minute I stop biking, my calorie burn stops. But in that weightlifting session, the calorie burn goes long, long after that, like days after. Right? There's a much, much more pronounced effect, and that's that metabolic effect. And also the second piece of that is, remember, we talked about the big long dissertation on type two muscle fibers. When we do strength training and we build up that, that type two muscle, that is that metabolically expensive muscle. That's that muscle, um, requires more calories just to keep on your body at rest. And when we hammer ourselves with constant cardio or cardio is our main form of exercise, we're paring that down. We're catabolizing that, that muscle. And. There's also, there's an adaptation piece as well. Um, our bodies are very, they're adaptation machines. You, you're very, you're just evolutionarily hardwired to be really good at adapting the stimulus. And as you continue to do, say, running and you run more and more and more, you get less and less, you become more efficient at it and your body becomes, learns to burn fewer calories while you do that. So if you want to keep the same calorie burn that you got the first time you went out and ran 30 minutes you'd have to keep increasing either the intensity or the duration of that just add in just forever. <laughs> um, eventually you'd be running, you know, 10 hours a day in order to still get that same calorie burn you got when you were doing 30 minutes a day. So again, don't get me wrong. 100% we're going to get there. You should do cardio. I just, I think that especially for those of us over 50, we cardio should be f- done for health reasons, not so much for, for fat loss um, reasons. And if we want to be in the best shape of our life, then that kind of begs the question, well, how do I, how do I balance strength training and cardio knowing that they're two different, they're at odds, right? If I do a whole bunch of strength training, no cardio, it would be weak cardiovascular rate. And vice versa, if I do a whole bunch of cardio, not much strength training, I'm not going to have the type two muscle that I want. And this is where I really love HIIT or high intensity interval training. Uh, if you're not from familiar, HIIT is, uh, usually very short, but very intense 
cardio exercises. This could be things like, um, it could be all out sprints on an assault bike or a rower. It could be doing jumping jacks or, or jump rope. It could be doing air squats, could be sprinting, could be biking, could be swimming, but it's these really short, all, all out or close to all out effort. So when I say short, I mean anywhere from five seconds, because you're really not going to sprint all out more than five seconds. You might sprint 10, 20 seconds. You're going to sprint all out. And there are some, there's some physiological reasons why, why you won't. But it's this really high, above 90% effort in really short bouts with longer rest periods. And one of my favorite forms of hit, uh, probably because it's just short, sweet, and as a way to really get it done, is Tabatas. If you're not familiar with a Tabata, it's a four-minute workout. Don't let that fool you. It can be really, really nasty. It works like this. You have eight rounds of 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. So let's say you're on an assault bike. Assault bike's where you... You're pedaling your feet and doing this with your with your hands as well. You're going to go, say, 90, 95% effort for 20 seconds. You're going to stop or go really, really easy for 10 seconds. You're going to do that for seven more rounds. So for four minutes, you go 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Really, really intense. Uh, that could be sprinting. It could be any movement. So think of HIT as a condiment to your move right protocol, not as a main dish. So if you, keeping with our nutrition analogy, if you think of, say, walking as your equivalent of hydration, something you should just do every day, think of strength training at your main course, right? And HIT is your condiments, or maybe it's your dessert. This is something we sprinkle in. If you're not currently doing any really high-intensity work, I would, I would, especially in our age group, I would caution you to bring this in slowly and conservatively, so as opposed to full-out sprints. If you haven't sprinted, I... <laughs> In a while, uh, I would not suggest starting there. I would start maybe a jog or a fast jog or a run, uh, but work your way up to this. And you probably want this to be in your program once a week. Maybe if you're just a a beast and you are recovering well, a couple times a week. I really love working your way up to double Tabatas. And so what that works looks like is a four-minute Tabata, four-minute rest, second four-minute Tabata. And I'll just finish with this on, on cardio and talking about HIT and all of that. I recently read, or I heard it somewhere, a statistic that said that after the age of 30 years old, 95% of all people will never sprint again. In other words, 95% of people over over the age of 30 will never sprint again in their lives. Um, if you're on this call and if you're watching in the in the future, I would I would hope that this doesn't describe you. I would hope that this is something that you that you like me. I want to I want to hold on to the ability to all out sprint, to jump powerfully, to be able to move dynamically and explosively for as long as I can. I want to be strong, fit, healthy. I don't want to surrender a very, very basic human movement such as running, running fast until I have to. Right. So I'll just kind of leave it, leave it at that. My action plan here, pretty simple. Incorporate some high intensity interval training into, it doesn't have to necessarily be hit, but some sort of really intense kind of training into your workout plan. Now, I do want to take just a minute in case I've got any endurance beasts out here. So I don't know if anybody on the phone is, if I got any marathoners, any ultra marathoners, any triathletes, and I just want to briefly address you guys. So your strength training needs to look very, very different from what we're talking about here, right? When you're in season, in other words, when you maniacs are out running <laughs> your 60, 70, 80 mile weeks or whatever you're doing, and you're doing your brick workouts and all that, you're not doing three or four strength training sessions a week on top of what you're doing. That's a recipe for disaster, right? You're, while you're in season, your strength training or your workouts are probably more restorative and mobility uh, focus than they are actual strength training. Then as you're in your off season, that's when you really shrink back that endurance work, cardio work. And I would strongly recommend that you work with a coach who's familiar with working with endurance athletes to get you strong in that off season and knows how to taper you as you start to ramp back up into your endurance season. So I just want to throw that out there. If you're an endurance per- person, maybe listening to this and you're like, oh, I don't do any strength training. And you're meanwhile, you're you're running 70 miles a week. You should not just throw on hit and (laughs) strength training on top of that. I want to be more careful with that. All right. Last but not least, you want to be in the best shape of your life. You're going to have to recover right. And I told you, recovery, I'm just going to make this a a bucket of things. And I'm going to start here. And this is 
got you've got to manage stress. And I want to talk a little bit about just stress in general. Your body stacks all stresses on top of each other. It just keeps this running tally of stresses. So the stress of you, um, you know, getting in a fight with your spouse, the stress of your traffic on the way to work, the stress of your asshole coworker, the stress of the timeline of this project being moved in, the st- all those stresses, right? They stack one on top of each other. But so do your good stresses. If you're somebody that likes a cold plunge, that's a stress. We stack that on. When you go into the gym, that's a stress. When you do your hit, that's absolutely a stress. And so what we need to be able to do is out-recover our total stress load. So once upon a time, our stress response was absolutely critical for our survival. It's a lot less so today. But once upon a time, you can imagine our very lives would have depended on a, a very robust stress response. Cave bear comes waltzing around a boulder. We're going to, we want all systems go. We want to shut down all of the non-essential systems in our body, like reproductive systems, all these other things. We want all our energy going into one place, one place only, and that's our fight or flight response. And so. If we didn't have that, we're not going to live to pass on our genes and and have you know continue the lines. So while this stress response still has value today, right? Anybody who's a first responder, anybody who's been in the military, etc., you know that there's time and place for that. But really, what I want to talk about here is chronic stress, and that's back to that. Hey, I'm. I've got stress at work. I got stress at home. I got um, all all of these. You know, there's stress in the traffic. Just all of these type things. When we have this low level chronic inflammation, it puts us in this inflamed state, in this this cellular inflamed state, which really makes it hard for us to recover and to optimize our our health. Now, I'll say this: many of us don't have control over our stresses. Right? Our stresses are our stresses. But you do have control over how you respond to uh, to your stress. So most of us these days, we live, we're, all of us are somewhere on the spectrum of chronic stress. So we're way over here, we're redlining all the time. Some of us are a little more zen about things. But just know that chronic stress, really, really bad. It's, it's associated with obviously horrible stuff, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, obesity, uh, messes up your sleep diabetes, psychological damages and emotional damages to stress. So for your action plan here, I'd love to tell you all to meditate for an hour every day, meditate for 30 minutes a day. But I think for most of you, that's not realistic. I've I've had an on and off relationship with meditation um, in the last, well, most of my adult life, actually. Um, my mind tends to go a million miles an hour. It's really hard for me to just sit and clear my mind for long periods of time. But what I will say is start with the gratitude practice. And I want to talk just to the guys here for a minute. Cause when I had this kind of conversation with the ladies, they're all, yeah, I get it. I'm going to go get a, I'm going to get a gratitude journal. I'm going to find a good one. And yeah, that's a great idea, Kevin. Thanks for bringing that up. And I talked to the guys. I can just see it in their eyes. They're like, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Gratitude. Gotcha. All right. What's next? When, when do I lift some weights? But I want to say that having some way of managing your stress day to day, and again, I'm talking more that low-level chronic stress, it's critical for you becoming the healthiest version of yourself right now. And one of the best ways I find I found personally in my life is to have some sort of a gratitude practice. For me, that looks like prayer. I do I pray a lot, the full disclosure here, but I bookend my days with prayer, specifically with gratitude prayer. So the very last thing I do every night before I go to bed is in this very specific gratitude prayer, I'm giving thanks for wonderful things in my life. No matter how shitty my day was, how crazy, how hectic, how, I mean, you know, look, you don't get to be almost six year old and have, not have some pretty disastrous days in your life, but there's always something you can be grateful for. And then first thing when I wake up, I start my day that way. So I'm setting the intention for the day by saying, okay, Kevin, you're gonna start this day by giving thanks, not by worrying about all the things you could worry about, but giving thanks for things you you can give thanks for. And I'll be a little more specific for folks that are like, eh, that's a little woo-woo, or I'm not a, I'm not a religious person about prayer. I really love this 30 Days of Gratitude. I've heard it from um, Debbie Waynes. She was, she was on our podcast way back in the beginning, and she had this 30 Days of Gratitude. And here's the deal. Every day you write down, it can be in your phone, it can be in just a regular old notebook, or you go out and get a really nice <laughs> gratitude journal. But every day you're going to write down five things you're grateful for. Really, really easy the first day. But the trick is you can't repeat any 
of the things you're grateful for. So second day, you think of some other things. The first day, yeah, it's my, my wife. Let's see, my kids, my house, my job, really simple stuff. Then the next day, probably pretty simple. Next day, you're scratching your head a little bit, but you get five down. Man, I'm telling you, a week or two into that, this really becomes challenging. And here's where I really like this gratitude practice. Because what, at least from my experience and folks that I have worked with that have done this, what happens is you are forced to think of things that you're grateful for. And they don't have to be big things. They could be little things, right? I just saw this beautiful bird flying and, and you know, gave me a moment of peace and an otherwise hectic day. Um, but the other thing that happens is as you are a couple weeks into this, you'll find yourself looking for things to be grateful for because you got to write them down. You're, you're Now you're really scratching your head. Damn, what, what can I be grateful for today? And so as you're out in the day, you're looking for things. You find you catch yourself looking for reasons to be grateful. I think that's a great, great practice. Um, but my, my real point here is to have a way to manage your stress. There's lots of breathing techniques. There's there's um, uh, me- obviously meditation. There's gratitude practice. There's prayer. Lots of different ways. But certainly want to figure out a way to manage your stress. All right, healthy sleep. If you've been around in our circle, in the Silver Ridge circle, you've probably heard us say that sleep is 100% the foundation of over 50 health and wellness. And it is absolutely critical that you dial it in if you want to get in and stay in the best shape of your life. I mean, seriously, sleep makes everything in your life better. If you think of uh, sleep as the tide in the bay and all the boats rise when the tide comes in, that's what sleep is in your life. Studies show that up to, a, uh, I think it's a third of all adults don't get a minimum amount of sleep. I think minimum in those studies is a minimum of seven, let alone the optimum amount. Gold standard should be eight hours. And I know that you're going to hear that, well, I think somebody told me somewhere, or I read in Reader's Digest that older people don't need as much sleep as as we get older. That's that's crap. It's, there's not any good science to back that up. And it especially doesn't apply to you if you're interested in being a, a superhuman, if you want to be in the best shape of your life in your 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s, you're going to have to figure out how to dial in sleep. So if you're somebody who struggles with getting consistent, healthy sleep, I got a few tips for you here. Number one, and this is a big one. It's, it's tough to do. I'll admit it's to set consistent bed and wake times. Most of us do a really good job of this Sunday through Thursday, and then we have completely different sleep schedules on the weekend. But Think about what you're doing there. You're actually giving yourself almost a form of jet lag if you've ever traveled, even just across the U.S., East Coast to West Coast. There's that lag, and it takes you a day or two to kind of feel like you're back normal again. You're literally doing that every week if you stay up to three, four hours later on the weekend than you do on the weekdays. Now, those of you that maybe are shift workers or things like that, I'm going to set that aside. Uh, that's really tough, and and I've got a different set of resources and recommendations for you. But if you have, if it's in your power to get consistent uh, sleep and wake times, absolutely can make a huge, huge difference. Really, kind of set up that circadian rhythm. Your body loves that routine, that circadian rhythm. Okay, I'm I'm waking at this time. I'm sleeping at this time. Number two tip: sleep in a cool, dark room. And when I say dark, I mean really dark. Get some blackout curtains. Take some tape and cover the little LED lights um, and probably cooler than you think. Science uh, study after study shows that the optimal sleeping temperature for human beings is between 66 and 68 degrees. This time of year, that's easy for most of us to do. It's cheap. You have to open your window, right? Doesn't mean you can't stack some blankets on, um, but a cooler room has been shown to be more conducive to healthy sleep. And just back up and just make sure everybody knows when I say healthy sleep, what I'm talking about is healthy REM and deep sleep and having that cycling in and out of those phases. Number three tip, and this one doesn't win me any friends either, but it's no electronics, at least an hour before bed. It would be better if it were uh, longer, but this digital detox before bed. And there's a couple of reasons for this, right? So first of all, this blue light coming from our screens right now inhibits melatonin production. Melatonin, as I'm sure everybody here knows, is what helps you fall asleep. Uh, helps you feel sleepy, fall asleep, stay asleep. And this blue light coming at us is inhibiting that production. And it makes sense, right? We were ancestrally hardwired when it started to get dark. Well, that was time to go to bed. When it got light, that was time to get up. And we we short circuit that by staring directly into blue light. Now you could go and get some good quality blue blockers and that would help. There's more and more um, 
science to suggest that, yes, you can reduce some of the melatonin deep blocking effects of blue light by wearing blue light blocking glasses. But I would challenge you to still consider a digital detox before bed. And the reason is most of us, what we're what we're consuming on these electronic devices before bed is stimulating or worse yet, it's triggering. So if you're watching, I don't know, some some crazy action movie or some intense, intense drama series on Netflix or worse yet, you're in bed and you're scrolling social media and you're getting triggered or worse yet, God forbid you're in bed scrolling the news, right? All of these are triggering. Um, they're raising cortisol production and that's not what you want. We should want cortisol falling off in the evening. You want melatonin rising and electronics can really mess with that. Which brings me, speaking of cortisol and, and melatonin, which have an inverse relationship to each other, or should, right? Your cortisol should be spiking in the morning. Your melatonin should be falling in the morning and vice versa in the evening. Another tip that doesn't seem really intuitive is getting some early morning sunlight. I mean, science has shown that even sitting in a sunny window while you have your coffee can help your sleep at night. Again, it's just reinforcing that uh, circadian rhythms. Um, also getting a little bit of sunlight is a fantastic thing for your vitamin D reserves as well. So uh, action plan there is to implement some sort of a, a pre-bed routine. And the way I'll say this is maybe pick one of those. You don't need to boil the ocean, but just what maybe the consistent bedtime start there once you get that or, you know, making the room dark and cool is a pretty easy one to start with. All right. Last one for recover is to avoid or limit alcohol. Um, I could have put this one under the nutrition piece, but I chose to put it here because mostly I think most of us know that alcohol is not helping us nutritionally in any way. But because really alcohol is preventing you from being your optimum self through damaging metabolic pathways, basically. So that's, I'm going to, I'm going to come at this from a couple of different angles here. Um, I don't want to sugarcoat this from a biological, physiological health perspective. Alcohol is metabolic poison, period, full stop, and a story that Science is very clear on this, and no, the resveratrol in red wine is not making you healthy. I don't care what the dude on um, the blue, what is it, the Blue Zones guy said, I'm drinking Greek wine, it's helping because they live to be 100. I'm going to live to, so now I go to the grocery store and buy this crappy wine, and it's that, that it doesn't work that way. Um, now, you could, in fact, make the argument that there's some social benefit of alcohol that might outweigh the negative physiological health effects. So if you, let's say we are going to make the case that me having a glass of wine with my wife over date night and us really connecting in that context, you might say that, okay, hey, alcohol, you know, there's more of a social benefit than there is a health attractor or similarly me and my boys, if we're having a, having a scotch and we're really connecting and having some good man time, you might say, well, the social health aspect of that alcohol might outweigh the little bit of metabolic damage that you're doing. But I would challenge that social health notion of alcohol because that's that's out there, and and I would challenge it by saying this: what what is alcohol doing in that place? Let's take that date night example. What is it about me that that makes me want to or need to have that glass of wine or a couple glasses of wine or three glasses of wine, right? Um, in order to connect deeply with my spouse, is am I saying that I'm lacking? If I don't have that, is there, is the alcohol really adding? What does the alcohol bring to the table that I don't already have? And that's what's meant by being sober curious. It's not so much like looking at the bad health reasons why you shouldn't drink because it's nerd talk. Let's face it. <laughs> we all know, right? Alcohol doesn't, isn't doing us any favor from a health perspective, but being sober curious is more like examining the role objectively and without judgment of alcohol in your life. Now, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach to anybody about alcohol and Lord knows I should be the last person on the planet to tell, to be delivering this message. I've had a very abusive alcohol, um, relationship with alcohol and drugs for the better part of my life. But I will say that I'm on this sober, curious journey without judgment. And I'm looking at its role in my life and I'm, I'm, I'm coming to some pretty startling conclusions interpersonally. So I would encourage you to become super curious when you get your resource sheet that I'll email that out tomorrow. There'll be an, uh, an it's a podcast interview with a lady named Carolina. She's got an unpronounceable last name, but it's called become becoming sober curious or something like that. 
if this resonates with you, if you're kind of like, what, I don't really, what are you talking about? Give that a listen. That was a really insightful and deeply impactful podcast episode for me to, I was the host of it, um, but for, for me being there, it actually changed, it changed the trajectory of my relationship with alcohol. So I'll get off my soapbox and just say that, you know, consider doing a dry month, consider becoming sober curious, but just know that alcohol is not helping you become superhuman. All right. I'm going to finish here coming into the mind, into the, um, into the home stretch here and talk a little bit about mindset. Remember we talked at the beginning about got this three-legged stool, right? We've got nutrition, exercise, and recovery. I'm going to say that mindset's the seat. It's the stool. You got to have the mindset. And I am fascinated as a coach, as a, as a person, I'm really fascinated in this phenomenon of why do some people, well, all of us try to get healthy. I mean, we know that New Year's, you just came around. Um, the vast majority of Americans made a health-related uh, New Year's resolution. The vast majority of them will fail, like 90-something percent will fail. What is it about those those couple of percent that don't fail? And by fail, I mean long-term. Somebody who starts a fitness journey, whether it's for weight loss, whether it's for optimal health, whether it's for performance, whether it's for muscle, but whatever it is, why do some people five years, 10 years, 20 years later, why do they live a fit life their whole life? And why do others just seem to struggle with it mightily all their life? Think about this. You know people in your life, maybe you are one. Um, you lose 10 pounds, gain 10 pounds. You lose 10 pounds, you gain 10 pounds. You lose 10 pounds, you gain 10 pounds. You lose 15 pounds, you gain 15 pounds. And it's this vicious cycle. You join the gym, you're all at it. Um, you're all about it. You go, go, go. You go for months on end. And then just kind of slowly stop. And years later, you're like, hey, I need to get back in the gym again. So you give gym membership and you go back in the gym. What is that phenomenon? And I, I'm really, I mean, I don't have the answer. Um, but I think that it has to do with mindset. And specifically, I think it has to do with becoming a person who loves this lifestyle, who loves, who identifies, not just identifies with being being healthy or being a healthy person. That's part of it. You have to become that person, but you have to become the person that loves it, that cares passionately about it, that cares deeply about these behaviors and habits. You don't necessarily, I think, need to be the person that loves every single one of the habits. You don't have to love getting up early and grinding through a grueling workout when it's just got a lot going on and maybe you're not feeling it. The motivation's not there. I don't think you need to love that but you do need to fall in love with this lifestyle, with this process. And I think one of the big detractors from this is people get started and they're, let's say they're two, three months into their new year's resolution. They're trying to eat healthy. They're trying to get to the gym. They probably don't have a great plan. They probably don't have a coach. They're just winging it. But what happens is after two, three, four months, it's just not, it's just the juice isn't worth the squeeze. You're like, man, this, the scale barely moved at all. I don't really look any different. I don't feel, I might feel a little better, but not remarkably so. And they quit, they give up. And they're making this, this decision to change is they're extrinsically motivated. I want, typically I want to lose weight. That's far and away the most common scenario, right? And it's not coming from a place of self-love. Hey, I love myself. Therefore, that's true. I would do the things, take care of myself. And what would what would a person who truly loves their body do? Okay, they would take good care of it. How do I do that and be invested? But it's more this, I feel gross. I feel fat. I feel ashamed. I, I feel embarrassed. I don't want to undress in front of my spouse. I don't want to take my shirt off when I go to the pool. Um, I feel bad that I can't, you know, I, that, that people my age are doing things that I can't. And so they make changes from this place of negativity and not Positivity. And look, don't get me wrong. Negativity, uh, feeling you know, these feelings of shame or guilt, um, self-loathing, even can be very powerful motivators for some people to start a health and fitness journey. And many of us, some of you listening to this, may have started in that same way. I certainly did. But I, what I'm trying to say is, I think that the one of the main keys that determines whether a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you're going to be in the best shape of your life is whether you've fallen in love with the process, that you absolutely love doing the things that it takes to have a lean, strong, healthy, vital, capable body, right? 
And it's not just that you love doing those things, you love the results from it. So I, I just wanted to kind of leave with leave with that. It seems that in coaching clients, we have clients knock it out of the park. We have clients that do decent. We have some just the small per- percentage that seem to be flops. And this is this phenomenon I'm looking at. And I'm like, okay, they all get the same prescription from, you know, we've got good coaches. We've got great coaches. We can we can program exercise. We can program nutrition. We can program healthy habits. What I'm trying to figure out now is how do I program mindset? How do I help somebody actually fall in love and become passionate about this? Look, it's easy for me. I'm a, I'm a fitness and nutrition nerd. I love it. It is my life. But I wasn't always that way. What? How, how did that happen? So I would encourage you to to reflect upon that for yourself. I would encourage you to to share that with others as well. Share share that journey because one of the best things you can do to make this world a healthier, happier place is to share your passion, your love for living a healthy lifestyle. Anyway, again, I feel getting back up on a soapbox here. I'm on a roll. Um, but my courage, my encouragement to, to you is to, obviously is to, it's to love yourself, to fall in love with this process and to think of this as a lifelong journey. You're never going to arrive. You're not going to, for most of us, we're not going to arrive, right? If you, I mean, maybe if you're, your sole goal is to win a a gold medal in your age division in some very specific sport, you, you might arrive at that. But and when it comes to healthy aging, being your strongest, most authentic self, probably not going to arrive there. All right. Let's put all this together and bring this home. Yeah, I've been sorry. I didn't mean to go quite this long. Your blueprint. Here are the things we talk about. So eat right, move right, recover right. As coaches, we, we know that asking you to do all of these things. There's a couple of you out there that are listening to this just by the nature of this topic that are absolute beasts and probably could take all of this on at once and make meaningful change. For the rest of you, I would, in fact, I would recommend all of you pick the areas where you think you can get some easy wins. In other words, let's start small. Let's take small steps. Remember that whole, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, right? And it's true. Even small positive changes, if you do them consistently, can result in huge impact over time. Think about, I just recently heard of an analogy of a plane taking off from DC to San Francisco. And if you just moved it, the nose of that plane before takeoff, just three inches to the south, and then it took off, it's not landing in San Francisco, it's landing in LA, right? That tiny, tiny change over time became this much bigger change. And that's the same with your health and and wellness journey. So my encouragement to you is look at each one of these and figure, maybe pick one in each bucket, or maybe you know that you uh, are lacking in one of these areas and just ask yourself, hey, how can I implement this into my life? All right, resources. You guys, everybody, and again, sorry for you folks. I didn't really think this through. Both of you are going to watch this on a replay. Um, I guess the best way, if you're in our Facebook group, that's the Over 50 Lean Body Blueprint. Um, just ping us. It'll be, it's there. You can you can just grab it there. Um, for the rest of you, if you're not in there, just email coach at silveredgefitness.com. We'll make sure you get that. That resource guide's got, I don't know, 30, 40 different resources. Almost all of them are free. There's a couple of things on there that are not free. There's Dr. Gabriel Lyon's book. I think there's a couple of books. There's a couple of things that aren't free, but pretty much everything on there is free. Um if you don't already know, we have a podcast. It's the Over 50 Health and Wellness Podcast. We are, I think, tomorrow, episode 260 goes up. So there is a ton of free resources there. If you go to silveredgefree.com, we've got a bunch of free guides there. We have a Facebook group. I just referenced that. That's the Over 15 Lean Body Blueprint. Uh, we do have a metabolic assessment. At some, time, at some point this year, that will be a paid assessment. Today, it's still free. Basically, what that is is you're just going to fill out a form and hop on a call. We'll do just a quick call and try and put together a 30, 60, maybe depending on where you are. We're going to give you a grade, your ABCD and your metabolism. And we're going to give you a plan for the next 30, 60 days to get the low-hanging fruit, at least in terms of improving your your metabolism. And of course, we do one-on-one coaching. So the way that looks for us is a one-on-one online, very personalized, very intensive exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle coaching. So those are our resources. Really, really appreciate you guys. I'm going to stop share here. 
Okay, that's our show for today, folks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I want to let you know that we have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. There, you'll find our free guides with our top tips on nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyle to assist you in your weight loss and fitness journey. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you. I'll put the links to everything we talked about in the show notes, and you folks can find those over at silveredgefitness.com slash 262. As we wrap up our time together today, you can show your support for this show in two important ways. The first is to tell a friend about this podcast and encourage them to give it a listen. The second is for you YouTube folks to please click the like and subscribe buttons and for you podcast folks to please give this podcast a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future episodes. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today and until next time, stay strong. Stay strong.